My name is Penny Dreadful. The dawn will soon come and bring with it the unresolved troubles of another day. A man, a frightening and violent man, has disappeared, but the fear he has created has not disappeared with him. Because of his actions, the shadow of the past has reached into the present. Tonight, it will arrive, and there will be new terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood, the podcast dedicated to dark shadows. I am your hostess, Danielle Penny Dreadful Galerter, and I am so excited to bring you the show today. Unbelievable. If all goes as planned, this episode will be going up on April 18th, 2022, which is 55 years to the day when Jonathan Frid first appeared on Dark Shadows as Barnabas Collins, episode 211, April 18th, 1967. A historic day to be certain. But before we get into today's show, I want to let you know that there's a new Dark Shadows book out. It's called Running Home to Shadows, and it's edited by Jim Beard, who you're going to be hearing from uh, very soon on this podcast, hopefully in the next episode, actually. And there are articles in that book by several people who have been on this podcast and people who I have reached out to uh, to be future guests in this podcast. So you'll be hearing uh, maybe even from everybody uh, who's in that book. It is available now on Amazon. Uh, I just got my copy in the mail. The book has a magnificent cover by the great Mark Maddox, uh, who I've mentioned before several times in this podcast. He, of course, painted the Dark Shadows lunchbox, but he's won several Rondo Awards. He's done so many amazing covers for monster magazines. This book is out now. It is on Amazon, and uh, it's really cool. So let's get to the show. Be careful, my friend, where you tread, for I warn you now, there are spoilers ahead. (laughs) Welcome to Terror at Collinwood, and oh boy, am I excited to tell you about my guest today. Not that he needs any introduction, but he's going to get one. My guest today. David Selby, who is a prolific actor and author. He has performed extensively in film, television, and theater. Among many other roles, he played Richard Channing on Falcon Crest, Paul Reynolds in Up the Sandbox, opposite Barbara Streisand, Michael Tyrone on Flamingo Road. He was Emery Jansen in Ansel Farage's Loon Lake. And to mark the 200th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birthday in 2009, Mr. Selby appeared on stage performing for Barack and Michelle Obama. He portrayed Lincoln in a scene from the play The Heavens Are Hung in Black at the historic reopening of the Ford Theater. He had a recurring role in the Marvel TV series Legion and was even the voice 
voice of Commissioner Gordon in the animated version of Batman The Dark Knight Returns. He's been performing in smartphone theaters, amazing online productions, including What Friends Do, Hashtag Expendables, and A Dark Shadows Christmas Carol, where he played Scrooge. And of course, is beloved by Dark Shadows fans worldwide for playing that delightful immortal rogue, Quentin Collins, and his assorted ancestors and parallel time counterparts. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the show, David. Thank you for being here with me today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Danielle. Thank, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness, what, what a delight. Um, now, we're celebrating in this episode the 55th anniversary of Jonathan Frid's first appearance on Dark Shadows as Barnabas Collins. Oh and, my goodness. <laughs> yes, yeah. And um, when you appeared in uh, Mario Leary's wonderful documentary, uh, Dark Shadows mm-hmm. and Beyond the Jonathan Frid story, you spoke yes, very f- good. It was great. And I want to thank Mary for, for actually setting up this interview. This is wonderful. Um, you spoke so fondly of, uh, of Jonathan, and I could sense the camaraderie uh, that must have been present on the set uh, for Dark Shadows and then subsequently with appearing at the Dark Shadows festivals. Could you talk a little bit about coming into the show? Did Jonathan give you any advice when you came in? Like how, how, what was that dynamic like? Oh my goodness. I didn't even know to tell you the truth. Uh, when I, when I came on to the show, mm-hmm. I had never seen dark shadows. And I, I know I've, I've said, I've said this before. I wasn't even aware of the show, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I didn't know Joan Bennett because I, you know, I'd watched uh, her films and everything. And so I did know a little bit about her. And then when I came on to the show and met all of the actors, oh my goodness. I mean, when you think about all of the actors, uh, Jonathan and, you know, but I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about John, but I'm thinking also of all the others uh, besides Joan Bennett, but there were so many others, Grayson Hall, Thayer David. I mean, there were just, you know, Louis Edmonds. It just went on and on. In fact, you mentioned, you mentioned something about smartphone theater. Mm-hmm. And back a couple of months ago, three months ago, whenever it was, we did a production of A Christmas Carol. Yes. And yeah. what they did, they got together. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so and uh, they got all the original actors around and were around uh, from Dark Shadows to do that production of A Christmas Carol. And how wonderful, how special it was to see everyone. And you know, many of us, in fact, in fact, all of us uh, have remained friends yeah. through the years. So that was very special. And uh, it would have been great to have Jonathan, but Jonathan, uh, <laughs> he was very special. Obviously, he was very special to the show. He, uh, I think, probably, I don't think there's any doubt, he saved the show when he came on and he created this character. And Jonathan himself, you know, he went to, I think, he went to Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was yeah. he was a theater actor and uh, he was, you know, had all of this training. So he was a very smart man. <laughs> and he was not only was he smart, he was a very, very nice man. Yeah. I mean, he was in a, in a funny to be playing Barnabas, but he was rather uh, I don't know. What do you say? Uh, he didn't take stage in person. Do you know? What I mean, he was unassuming. He was very uh, easy, right? Very polite. 
very, uh, oh, can I say, almost gentle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Barnabas was going to be uh, temporary, you know, this ferocious, yeah, vampire oh, yeah. that he was. Uh, you would see, you would see some kind of humanity mm-hmm. in, in Barnabas. I mean, he wouldn't just come along and bite your neck or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> he had a tortured soul. Sure. And um, I don't think uh, he, he didn't come across as evil. The fans loved him. Right, right. So much so. Mm-hmm. that my God, I, I, I was told then when I, and I knew nothing about it all, but I was told that all oh, it's the fan mail started to come in. Uh, in such a volume, you know, that they thought Barnabas was this, uh, I don't know, not Easter Bunny, (laughs) but maybe Santa Claus. Right, right, right. It's funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was all this, uh, you know, in the studio down there on West 53rd Street, um, they would bring all the mail in, Mm -hmm. uh, fan mail. And I can imagine before I would even got there, uh, on the show that uh, <laughs> Dan Curtis, Dan saw <laughs> the boxes of boxes of fan letters and he knew they had something in Jonathan Fritt. Mm-hmm. And it was that fan's response to Jonathan, to, mm-hmm. to Jonathan because of who he was inside mm-hmm. of a man and also his qualities. Yes. As an actor. Mm-hmm. And it was this uh, response that made Dan and all the writers say, oh, my goodness, <laughs> we have to keep him on the show sure. <laughs> if yeah. we're going to have a show. <laughs> and so um, they went to work and uh, and, you know, built this character. But uh, he was I don't know. You always felt to a certain extent in his reaction to the other that he was in a way rather than this, you know, you think of this vampire or whatever. In a way, he became the show's hero. He was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was just such a different kind of creation that he was responsible for that he became he was indispensable. Indispensable. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to such a degree that he was on it so much and doing these publicity tours, et cetera, that he oh. was, you know, they they yeah. they then brought your character in. And <laughs> oh, uh, it, interestingly, lightning struck twice here because uh, uh, Quentin also became uh, a pop culture icon and a very important part of, of the show as well. Uh, you know, you had the big guns, you know, Barnabas, Quentin and Angelique became it's it's interesting how the, the sort of the the monster characters in the show became did become the protagonist with Jonathan uh, Barnabas kind of leading the charge, but also with Quentin uh, there and Angelique. Now, Angelique, oh, yes. Yeah, with Larry yeah, Parker, yeah, sure. yeah. You're right. It, and it was this, uh, <laughs> I don't know when, an, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, Danielle. I, I never, um, when Quentin came, Barnabas, uh, Jonathan was already established. And in fact, if anything, he even said to me a couple of times, more than a couple of times, it is, he, he says, oh, am I glad you're here? <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that, you know, that there was no um, 
you know, sometimes you get, you know, when you came on, you, you were a, a hit, you know, so, and, um, but there was no envy or anything like that. It was, you were helping carry the load and you were part of this uh, ensemble and he was grateful to you too, for helping uh, to carry the load on the show. He was indeed. And, uh, and of course, in my, in my position, I was uh, fortunate and uh, that he felt that way. And I was glad to have the opportunity, you know, because I don't know. <laughs> you think of Jonathan going outside. I mean, he couldn't. Uh, he was <laughs> he was just not he was a different kind of vampire. <laughs> he had a real heart, you know, he was so likable. And uh, his problem as problems of as a vampire were, were beyond his control, beyond his doing, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it was. Uh, yeah. There was a sympathy that the yeah. audience felt for him. Sure. That's right. So even when he succumbed to whatever a vampire is supposed to do, the fans still uh, gathered around, admired <laughs> him, had loved him. <laughs> right. Right. No matter. Because they knew in a way, I think. When you think about uh, all the character, Maggie, the Catherine Scott character, that I don't know, there was a kind of innocence. Is there such a thing as an innocent vampire? <laughs> I don't know. But um, he had played other, you know, I can see him as playing Richard III, you know, yeah, all sure. of these. And you mentioned Angelique, Laura Parker, and Laura. Mm-hmm. She she became the temptress, the, the <laughs> you know the 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 villain in that way. Sure. So um, I remember writing about that some years later, and I talked about that. Yeah, the, the the thing on the show was, oh, it was so nice to have the attention of Barnabas Collins. <laughs> right, right. And it's interesting because your characters followed a similar trajectory in that Quentin started out as a, also as a villain, you know, as a ghost. And then we see his past and he was, a, you know, a rogue, a, a womanizer. But there was a charm to, to Quentin as well. And that also resonated with the audience. Despite all the bad things Quentin was doing, people liked yeah. Quentin a lot. Uh, and that also speaks to you to your acting ability there was a similar dynamic that happened there and he was then he was cursed as a werewolf and did all these horrible things and developed a, a conscience and that was an interesting parallel i think with what happened with jonathan and yeah um, well for, for me it was a little in a way I, I, at first you know <laughs> i didn't have to talk you know I right, didn't right. <laughs> and then uh, you know the joke was of course you know it'd be like I don't know. I've mentioned that before somewhere along the line. It'd be like the old silent movie days when you <laughs> when you heard the finally heard the actor's voice. You you know, you didn't care for the voice. But fortunately, uh, uh, when Quentin got to speak, it turned out all right. You know. <laughs> oh, yeah. To say the least. Yeah. Definitely. But I had them. You see, another thing that Quentin had going for him. And I can't emphasize this enough because of how important uh, Bob Cobert, oh, the composer. Yeah. Yes. How important his music was to the show. Can you imagine when Quentin appeared? I mean, in hearing Quentin's theme. So he had his own theme song. How wonderful for I, the actor, for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. You know, it's amazing. And hearing and, that 
theme come out of that old Victrola or that sure. old, you know. And David, uh, to David, to this day, you know, every so often, you know, I'm, I'm in an elevator or, or somewhere I'm in a place where they're playing music. And every so often you hear Quentin's theme. And I just I love it. I just get a big smile. I, as you have. Has that ever happened to you or just oh, randomly yeah. you heard oh, it somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I believe it, believe it or not. And I have laughed a few times I've heard it. I don't remember, but I distinctly remember a couple of times at least more getting on an elevator <laughs> and the elevator music. There would be Quentin's thing. Oh, my goodness. That's great. <laughs> uh, it's so but, perfect. Um, nah, okay. But I was blessed, you know. I was so fortunate, again, going back to Bob Covert and the music he composed. Sure. And including the song that he... Uh, uh, that Nancy Barrett and I did. Ah, uh, yes. I want to dance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I want to dance. But uh, Bob, it, it was so important. And the, mm-hmm. and the thematic music, you know, when sure. that theme song came on and the show opened up, you know, uh, very yeah. special. The music, yeah, it was the, it was a character in and of itself. It was such an important part yeah. of the the spirit and the feel of the show. Uh, absolutely, yeah. you um, know those waves coming in, yeah, and then you anticipate, oh my God, what's going to happen here? Absolutely, you know, and yeah. it was just that music, you know, it yeah. was a very important character on the show. Sure, uh, David, uh, you know, I'd mentioned uh, Jonathan did these uh, big publicity tours and you did as well. And I, I've seen pictures and it really looks, I mean, it looks like, like the Beatles. I mean, it's just yeah. bananas how many people, and I try to convey that some, you know, my uncle introduced me to dark shadows when I was really little. Like when I, I don't remember a time when I didn't know what dark shadows was because he was uh, a fan and he passed that love on to me, that passion on to oh, me. For the show. Yeah. Oh gosh. He gave me the bubble gum. The first time I ever saw Quentin was, was those bubble gum cards. Bubble gum cards. Yeah. And I was looking at them and I, who's this guy with the sideburns? And my uncle would say, Oh, that's Quentin. You know, he's, he's yeah. a werewolf. And so, um, but these pictures of these publicity tours, I try to convey to people, you know, younger people that may not have been around then that this was an extremely popular show and your character, Jonathan's character doing these tours and the, the number of people. What was that like? And did Jonathan prepare you for that when you went out on those tours? <laughs> no, I mean, not in that way. I mean, he would say he would tell me, he says, oh, like, um, it's actually one one I did in Baltimore, mm-hmm. I think it was called uh, I Am an American Day Parade. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Anyway, he didn't tell me anything about it other than I'm glad you're going. I'm glad you're doing this. And it was only later I found out that he was the one who was supposed to do have done that parade. <laughs> <laughs> he was supposed to have done the parade in Baltimore. But he had so many things on his agenda. You know, ABC kept him running around the country doing these things. So he was delighted. And but it was only later I found out. I So I go to Baltimore in for the American Day Parade. I'm riding in this uh, convertible. It was, you know, it was 
it was quite special. And all of these, I don't know, people out there yelling at Quentin, you know, and this <laughs> and that. And finally, on the bandstand, there was a sort of a grandstand where you watch the parade. I had to leave. Um, they had to uh, take me off because there were so many people crowding around. But and then it was only later I found out that Actually, Jonathan was supposed to have done done that, but I was glad he left it to me because it gave me a a chance, an opportunity to really, I don't know, get a feel for Mm -hmm. how many people, young people, I don't know, there were a lot of just uh, differing ages, felt Mm -hmm. about Dark Shadows, about the show. And, you know, to have been in something that meant that kind of thing to people where they showed up like that. I, I, it was very special. And to this day, to this day, it is still very special. And I think that's why, uh, I don't know, dear, it, it, it just brings back such a warm feeling in me that I, I don't know how else to express it, but uh, I was so thankful to the creators, my fellow actors, and all of the fans, my goodness gracious, who would walk me home from the show. (laughs) (laughs) And and send you banana bread, as I recall. (laughs) Oh, Sara Lee banana bread. Yeah. Are you still are you still a fan of banana bread? Uh, I'm still a fan of banana bread, but now I get it at a bake shop. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I shouldn't even say this. You go to Starbucks, they have banana bread. (laughs) Oh, do they? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, sometimes they do. Yeah. But I always laugh when I, you know, anyway, it was wonderful. And yes, we got uh, so much. So we got so many, (laughs) so many loaves of banana bread. I there was a wonderful place up near Lincoln Center that had a uh, a place where you could donate things. Yeah. And uh, so I took them a lot of banana cakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just for those who may not know, David mentioned in, a, I think it was like 16 Magazine or Tiger Beat, that he loved Sara Lee banana cake and then yeah. endless loaves of banana bread from fans <laughs> started showing up at the Dark Shadows uh, studio. Yeah. So. That's how I remember, though. That's how I found out about the character of Quentin, that he was, I said, because uh, the, the gal, Diana, she was our secretary and whatever. She, I come in one morning and she says, come on in here. She We went into the room and back in the corner were all these boxes. And she said, says all of those boxes are filled with Quentin's fan mail. <laughs> and she said, so you're going to be around for a while. <laughs> That's great. I mean, just even when you weren't speaking as Quentin, as the, as the ghost, as the Peter Quint, uh, you know, character that, right. that was uh, really compelling. I remember as a child, you gave me terrible nightmares when I was a little <laughs> kid, you and Jonathan both. I mean, I had nightmares about Quentin, you know, appearing yeah. as a ghost and uh, it was scary, you know, for, for a child, <laughs> you know, it, did you, ha- were you familiar with um, Henry James's the turn of the screw prior to playing uh, Quentin or, or the innocence or? Uh, no, I mean, I go back to Dan, Dan Curtis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously it was Dan's, um, you know, creative 
mind, his thinking. And obviously there was the recognition by everybody there with uh, to Henry James. Sure. And as you just mentioned, the turn of the screw, Peter Quint. And it's not a uh, too far to say Peter Quint and Quentin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so he had been, Dan had been a fan of Turn of the Screw. And, um, you know, you if you wanted to see Columnwood as a, a, you know, a real building, a real estate or whatever, Dark Shadows would, if that's what you wanted to see, it would disappoint because there was not the money to be able to have that kind of thing, you know, where we were. But at the same time, the creators of that Dark Shadows world, they were able to, for those times, in that small studio on West 53rd Street, they brought forth with their creative beings. What a great show they created. And uh, it was like, I, I remember saying one time years ago, I wrote a piece about it, and I, I remember saying it was, it was like doing a high wire act with no net. <laughs> Is it, was it similar to summer stock in in some ways oh, learn, yeah. learning things very quickly and doing very show? quickly very very quickly there was <laughs> you know always that feeling of uh, we got to get this done there's no time for retakes there was no time to you know worry about if somebody had walked in front of your <laughs> camera <laughs> sure you sure. know uh, and dan would always say forget it ignore it you know, if they're looking at that, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's part of the. I, I think the spontaneity of it contributed to that frenetic lightning in a bottle energy that was happening because it yeah. was, you know, so um, yeah. on the yeah. on the fly like that. But it, it added. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, theater actors on the show. Many of the actors came from the theater, such as Jonathan, yes. who had a great passion for theater, as we see in the documentary, um, but also Thayer David, Grayson Hall, Louis Edmonds, all of these great all theater it, actors. Um, did you bond over that with Jonathan or with any of the other actors talking? about theater while you were on the show or doing you were still performing in theater or you were getting yeah. your master's oh yes yeah. very much so i <laughs> yeah. mean in fact uh, you know jonathan kept going and so did the all of the actors mm -hmm. um and then we would we ended up doing things together uh, a couple of us down through the years you know we would mm -hmm be and then sometimes it would it would be a television thing or whatever and there we'd be and a lot of that you see i think goes back to dan curtis because he was fond of actors he um every actor you know he he took care of them in a way they uh you you got billing you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and we were all so um intertwined with each other we depended upon each other yeah, like a repertory. And one and also Dan loved close-ups. Yeah, <laughs> in close. You know. Yeah, he right. Wanted, he wanted to get in close on those faces. Yeah, uh, um, it, it's interesting because you played 
the Quentin, but then you played Quentin from 1897, who became immortal, you know, with the Dorian Gray painting. But then you yes. also played a, a parallel time version of Quentin. You played an ancestor of Quentin's who was also named Quentin. And then another <laughs> parallel version of that Quentin was was that difficult to keep track of? Or did you do because the takes the, the way you play each of those Quentins is distinctly different. If you, yeah. you know, watch, um, was that challenging to come up with different sort of versions of Quentin, I guess? Yes, but in a way, <laughs> they were all related. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, um, but um, yeah, it was, but it was fun. It was, it was, it was good to, I don't know, it was just all part of it. And we were just all, I don't know, sort of excited to be doing it. And I mean, all of the different characters, uh <laughs> The actors that came on to that show, see, and this is because of Dan Curtis and Gordon Russell, Sam Hall, um, you know, they they were after whatever. When you think about the kind of actors, a friend of mine just passed away. We had a, there was a service for him a week or so ago, and his name was Mitch Ryan. Of course, yeah. And, yeah. and Mitch had been on the show, and sure. what a terrific, terrific actor. Yeah. And uh, he and I had been to the same theater down called the Barter Theater in Abington, Virginia. And there were so many others like Marie Wallace, Clarice Blackburn, Jim Storm. Yeah. So many. They were all theater people. Dennis Patrick, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Lisa Richards. Yeah. Uh, Some of them I still see, you know, a lot of them today. Um, So. Uh, it was very special. And the yeah. fact that we went back and tried to create different personas for for all of the different characters that Dan would weave in a new version or whatever. It was just uh, very special. Um, and David, I know you uh, you have to go, but I'm going to just ask you closing thoughts here on uh, the 55th anniversary of uh, Jonathan Fridge's uh, first appearance as Barnabas. My final thoughts, Jonathan, they're not the final thoughts because he's always going to be with me as all of the actors that we worked together so closely during those years, during that time. And it was such a special, special time in those late 60s, 1970. But what the country was going through and uh, Jonathan was just a, a very special individual and i'm proud that after it was all over that we all of us we remained friends and uh we we had a good time in fact i have a somewhere i have a letter from jonathan uh written from when he was you know up canada talking about well he wasn't traveling much anymore wasn't doing this anymore and you know and then we did have that opportunity to go to London together for... Uh, oh, the Burton film, yeah. Yeah, they had Tim's uh, film. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I, I, it was just... It was a very special time, and I, I know that's, that's why I'm talking with you, mm-hmm. because of how wonderful it was. It's just so hard to explain. Uh, but I can feel it. I can. I'm feeling. I'm walking into the studio right off the street, past the Bob, the doorman, at the desk, little desk there. There was a parking lot attendant right next door. Take the elevator, go up, get off the elevator, 
there's Diane. I walk into the rehearsal room. We do the eight o'clock in the morning. We do the read through of the script we're going to do that day. We block it out right there. And after a while, we walk downstairs to block it out for the cameras. Everybody, cast, crew, writers, producers, the, you know, the secretaries, Bob, the doorman, everybody. It was so special. And then after the day was finished, you'd walk outside and there would be a group of loyal fans uh, waiting. Many came, not every day, but a lot of days, most days, <laughs> just to say, hello, how are you? And uh, Daniel, it was uh, a very, very uh, special time. And some of it had to do with, obviously, with the, the times we were going through. All of the trials and tribulations New York City was going through, the country going through, the political assassinations that we had with Kennedy, mm-hmm. Martin Luther. Uh, anyway, it... Uh, yeah. Brings a lot of, uh, I don't know. I uh, I don't want to get emotional. Then, so <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Except that I can truly say I have never had better friendships in my life than the friendships that were made doing that show. And I, the, the fans picked up on it. We had no idea. But how special it was to have been a part of something like and, that. And to this day, uh, it, it still resonates. Your fans are still here and uh, and we appreciate everything that everyone who contributed to Dark Shadows, including yourself, brought to us to entertain us and to provide that that escape, that, that sort of... Uh, you know, Jonathan Fred used to call Dark Shadows a, like a dark brigadoon. And I think that's a great description for it. And that's that's just to this day. That's I still works in that way. Yeah. So. I was in brigadoon. <laughs> Were you really? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, as a as a young, young, very young actor. Anyway, um, uh, and it doesn't mean that we all don't want to go on. We continue working. Sure. Um, you know, doing other things and this and that. But. How blessed I yeah. think we were to have that come into our lives. Still, we've uh, we can we can we can hold it to our hearts, mm-hmm. and all of the people who I'm I'm talking about fans and all of everybody, mm-hmm. we can it touched us all. And hey, next year is the 55th anniversary of Quentin's first appearance, so uh, <laughs> perhaps we can revisit. Uh, perhaps we'll revisit. <laughs> I'll do a I'll do a couple of original reading things from Ooh. Dark Shadows. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. And I know the fans are gonna really love hearing from you. So thank you very Just much. Remember, Daniel, what as an old friend of mine, dear uh Jason Robarts, wonderful actor. Uh, dear Jason would say, what's cut won't flop. <laughs> <laughs> so don't don't hesitate to just, oh, he's going on and on too much. Cut that. <laughs> Eliminate that. <laughs> <laughs>
everything you said was great, but I, I will, I will, I will tighten it up a little bit. I'll okay, clean, I clean appreciate it, it. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Thank you so much to the legendary David Selby for taking the time to talk with me today in celebration of Jonathan Frid's 55th anniversary of his first appearance as Barnabas Collins on Dark Shadows. And now for segment number two, I am joined by three wonderful individuals, producer, director, Mario Leary, who is back here visiting me on the podcast again, and it's great to have her back. I'm also joined by writer and actress, Nancy Kersey, and also by copywriter and video producer director, Will McKinley, all of whom have worked side by side with Jonathan Frid. So welcome the three of you to the show. It's great having you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Danielle. Oh gosh, my pleasure. Uh, I heard the three of you a few years back on the Collinsport Historical Society podcast. It was the the Clunes reunion, as I recall. And uh, that was a lot of fun to listen to that. And uh, it was great hearing the three of you reminisce uh, about your experiences with Jonathan Frid. And I'm glad to have you here for this uh, 55th anniversary of uh, Barnabas's first appearance on the show. This is this is fun. Uh, so b- before we we dive into some of this, there are a couple of things I want to touch on. Would you each, uh, you know, starting uh, Mary, Nancy and Will. Um, tell us a little bit about what each of you did in terms of working with Jonathan Fred. I know, Mary, we we delved into this in your episode when you were on, but if you would just recap for those who may not have uh, caught that one, that would be great. Thank you. I met Jonathan in April of 1985. Uh, that evening, Will McKinley was also there. He basically had been thinking about doing a one-man show And he didn't know how he would ever get it marketed, sold, get it before an audience. So when I started working with him, at first it was developing the script, but then it was about contacting colleges, universities, Performing Arts Center, about booking the show. And so I was in charge of all the booking. So basically doing, what would you say, general management work. Um, Jonathan and I formalized our association in September 1986, and we became business partners under the banner of Clunes Associates. Mm-hmm. And so that was the umbrella through which he, he toured his shows. Uh, so basically, uh, I was handling all aspects of once you've got a booking, they need the press kit, talking about the technical needs, which are pretty simple, but telling them exactly what they needed to have, what he would bring with him, uh, all aspects of getting a show on the road. And what about you, Nancy? Well, I had met Jonathan before I went to his apartment. I was invited to his apartment to watch him rehearse in 1986. I had written a review of his one-man show that was in progress uh, in development the year before that I saw at a festival. So uh, based on that, when he read it, he wanted me to meet me, met him. Uh, Mary and Jonathan eventually asked me to come work for them um, as a writer. It was twofold. One, I would help Mary write the promotional materials and the uh, direct contact letters uh, to get bookings. And two, I would help Jonathan with the material that he was developing for the one-man show. My job primarily was to write segues between the pieces that he would do and write some original material, which I did uh, primarily for his second show that he that he did, Ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got involved. So I worked with Jonathan a lot. But I also worked with Mary. 
And what about you, Will? So even though I'm uh, uh, the the junior member of this <laughs> of this trio, in in some ways I am the senior member because I knew Jonathan, in fact, uh, years before Mary and Nancy did. Um, I started watching the show in 1982 in syndicated reruns on WNBC in New York and got involved with the fan group. And we all together decided to plan the first uh, East Coast Dark Shadows convention in 1983. And Jonathan got involved and he basically became part of our planning committee. So I met him actually just around this time of year in 1983. I was 14 years old. We were at a cafe in Queens. He walked in I had been contributing to the the fanzine and he walked in and I was the first person that sort of saw him and stood up. And he said to me, uh, you must be Billy, which was my, you know, my name because I was 14 years old. I was a little boy. And he said, you're an excellent writer. And I was 14 years old. Nobody had called me a writer before and certainly not Barnabas Collins, <laughs> Dark Shadows. And he made good on that pronouncement. Um, and over the next number of years, he gave me a number of writing assignments that nobody my age would have had any business, you know, even considering. And then, you know, uh, a couple of years later, uh, when he decided to really be serious about pursuing the one man shows, he got a letter from Mary and he had already worked with me in a number of capacities. So he invited me to be part of that. And the three of us hit it off. And then I basically became in our little trio I was sort of like the researcher. I would, mm -hmm. you know, after school and on weekends, I would go to the libraries, try and find stories and poems and stuff. Before and Google. Then, <laughs> yeah, before Google, I was like, I was Google. I was like with books and all. Yeah. Um, and I would like pitch him. You know, they would, these would be pitch sessions. I'd be like, all right, what do you think of this? Yeah. And, you know, I'd sort of like explain a story, bring him a copy of it, tell him why I thought it was good. And then if it made it into the show, that would be like a little, you know, feather in my cap. Now, before I want, I want to talk a little bit about your experiences with Dark Shadows and also with Jonathan uh, as a person, uh, but also, you know, uh, as fans of, of the show, too. Uh, but before I do that, I also want to congratulate Mary uh, here because she, of course, directed uh Dark Shadows and Beyond the Jonathan Fridge story, which we talked to her uh, about in an earlier episode. And uh, the documentary is just uh, raking in these awards, Mary. So, wow, congratulations to you. Well-deserved, I might add. Thank uh, you, Danielle. Absolutely. Mary, Mary actually had to build an extension onto her apartment to fit <laughs> all of the awards. <laughs> Which that, that's great. They're just don't Very put them impressive. in the east wing of your apartment because they might end <laughs> up in parallel time. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, some just I'm going to I'm not going to list them all, uh, but there's so many. Uh, the Something Wicked DocuFest, which I love that. That's great. Award winner, best feature documentary award winner, best of festival. Um, we have the Bright International Film Festival in London, uh, best narrative documentary award winner, Crown Point International Film Festival, best editing, Indie Eye Film Awards award winner, best documentary feature. So many, so many awards. 
award. I mean, the list just goes on and on with with all of these awards, official selections, award winners. I, uh, how 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 are you feeling, Mary? You must be feeling pretty good uh, here with the, all these awards you're getting. Yes, it is very nice to receive accolades. I really, really want as many people as possible to see the documentary. And I found this as an outlet to get more people to know about it, see it, uh, mm-hmm. hopefully also get some local press promotion that would, again, let people know, oh, I have that documentary to watch. Because in this day and age, there's so many options to watch of series and movies and specials and documentaries on many, many different streaming services. So it's hard to get noticed. So I saw this as a way, um, as a promotional vehicle to, as I say, get more people to watch the documentary. And, uh, and I hope uh, all fans will watch this documentary. I mean, I, if you're a Dark Shadows fan, you've you got you to gotta watch this documentary. It's, it's amazing. I mean, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched this, it's, it's available on many different uh, platforms. You can get it on Amazon, of course, but uh, there are lots of different ways uh, you can watch this, right, Mary? Yes. Um, it originally started on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It's both mm-hmm. uh, still available there. It's also on other channels such as Voodoo Fandango, YouTube, uh, Vimeo, but most recently Tubi, which is a station that, uh, excuse me, service that's free with ads. Um, The other ones you rent for a small fee, um, but many fans have told me they're excited about it being on Tubi. And speaking of Tubi, people keep telling me to mention this, and I've mentioned it a few times, but sometimes I forget. You can watch all of Dark Shadows on Tubi with ads for free. Uh, You can watch the entire series. So if you're just getting into Dark Shadows or you're curious about watching Dark Shadows or you want to revisit it, it is all there, every single episode. Um, So um, I know, Mary, you talked about, you know, your uh, how you first discovered Dark Shadows. Will mentioned uh, a bit here about that. Nancy, now I I know you've posted. You, I remember uh, liking your posts a lot in the uh, Dark Shadows forums years ago. I guess in the early two thousands. Uh, and you'd always kind of I loved how you'd always kind of set the record straight about things and, <laughs> and put the facts out there. It was always like really great to read your your posts. Uh, I just remember this one in particular where somebody was like it was this one person who was adamantly arguing that Dark shadows was campy and you just kind of like when you just you just basically dismantled whatever argument they had and i was like you go nancy um so um were you a fan of dark shadows before you worked with jonathan frit i saw his first episode live wow yeah i and I remember it mainly because at the time I was really into vampires as a little girl. We lived in a haunted house. Oh, wow. So I was very interested in the supernatural. And with Barnabas, when I saw him during a commercial break, I ran upstairs. My mother was taking a nap. I ran upstairs and said, Mom, Mom, there's another vampire besides Bela Lugosi. <laughs> she she didn't care. But anyway, I was very excited and started watching the show. And Jonathan Frid made me want to go into the theater. Wow. And I became very interested in the vocal arts. I did quite a bit of that before I even met him. I uh, bought records at the performers reading poetry and so on. And so when it came to be that he was going to do Reader's Theater, I I was rejoicing because I thought that's where he should be. Definitely. 
but I was a big, oh, I was a big fan. I was one of those who, uh, I didn't have to run home. I was bust home. So <laughs> I would run up the stair, run up the, uh, the driveway to see the show. And, oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yes. But I was one of the ones that saw it live back in the day. No, it's great that you uh, gave me that segue because uh, you saw the first episode uh, where Jonathan Frid appeared, episode 211, April 18th, 1967. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask the three of you, um, what were your impressions upon first watching episode 211 when you saw it for the first time versus watching it later on, like maybe after knowing Jonathan and working with Jonathan, looking at it through that lens, didn't working and knowing Jonathan alter your perception of that episode or you get more insight into it based on your conversations with him, any, anything like that. So starting with Will, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so um, let me take a step back for you for to answer this, um, mm-hmm. because not only is this the anniversary of Jonathan's debut on Dark Shadows, it's also the anniversary anniversary of the first time I saw it uh, because it was the same week. It was April 12th, 1982. Oh, okay. That it premiered. And Mm. also, by the way, uh, April 2nd is also the anniversary of Marion and me sitting down with Jonathan in his apartment for the first time. So, and it's, and it's the, the anniversary of the final episode. So this month is like, April is like magic month for, you know, for, for me and for dark shadows and Jonathan, but you know, I'm a little bit unique in that I had seen the movie first because when I was little, um, I was a big horror fan like Mm -hmm. you, my father, like I listened to the episode where you talked about your uncle, like sharing the old horror movies with you, which was great. And I totally related to that because my father did that for me. And he said around Halloween, he said, oh, there's a movie on Channel 9 and it's based on a, there used to be this soap opera about vampires and it was on a long time ago, but I think you'd like it. So I watched it and I was completely, completely hooked on this movie. I just thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen in my life. So when about a year or so later, when I saw an ad announcing that the show was coming on, you know, WNBC in New York in syndication, I was shocked because I just, you know, never thought that they would rerun a soap opera. It was unheard of. And I was a big soap opera fan. I I think at the height, my mother and I recorded like six hours a day of soap operas. And I I would watch them at night, you know, fast forwarding through the commercials, including Mary's show, The Guiding Light. And so but I loved the movie and I loved the Barnabas of the movie and I loved the pace of the movie and I loved the style of the movie. So when I watched that first episode of Dark Shadows, I was baffled by how this could, how was this show so popular? I just like, I was clueless because it was the first two episodes is basically, you know, pretty much sort of just talking. We don't, you know, see Jonathan until the end of the episode. They took like about an hour and a half of TV time to get through the first like five minutes of the movie. And, you know, I mean, you know, the unique charms of Dark Shadows, the you know, the cameras are bouncing around. There's, you know, the boom shadows and flubbed lines. And so it took me a little bit of time to acclimate to this version of Dark Shadows as compared to the feature film. Mm -hmm. And what sold me on it was Jonathan. I mean, the minute he came on and the minute he started, you know, particularly the third episode of the syndication package, the one where he 
does the, you know, what's called the soliloquy to the portrait of Josette. He was just special. And the show hooked me. I found it at the right time in my life. And it became a, a huge thing in my life. And when I met Jonathan, I always tried my my love for Dark Shadows, my identity as a fan of Dark Shadows was always very important to me and remains very important to me. So I wanted to maintain that. Mm -hmm. And in my interactions with Jonathan, although we worked very closely and we were very got along great and, you know, were very cordial and would like argue and, you know, were very honest with each other. I always tried like I didn't consider him a friend in part because I didn't necessarily want to consider him a friend. I I wanted to be able to maintain my, like the magic of this character and this performance. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to, I didn't want to diffuse that by like being his drinking buddy or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, so that, so that really was the nature of our relationship. I, he was a mentor. Certainly he was a mentor, probably outside of my father, the most significant male influence in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but I always tried to hold on to that, that sort of like me being the scared little kid who watched House of Dark Shadows for the first time when he was like 11 years old. You know, yeah. And I've talked to other fans who've, you know, become friends with the actors or have been close with with the actors in various capacities. And it's interesting. They do sort of still maintain that love for for the show as their sort of, you know, their favorite show and escapism and, and all of this. And they kind of keep that its own thing, you know, so it sounds like that's a similar situation for you. It as is. Well. I mean, it is. And it's like the, the first time we all went to his apartment for a meeting, mm -hmm. I was I was wearing a, a Barnabas Collins button <laughs> and he, <laughs> and he looked at me and he was like, are you wearing a Barnabas Collins button? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And he was like, don't do that. <laughs> Like, don't come into my apartment with a picture of my face on your shirt. And I was and I was like, all right, well, that I'm 14, you know, like good to learn that, you know, yeah, yeah. because I yeah. was like, oh, he's going to love it. I have a butt. You were being very fanboy. He was kind of like, you know. Draw, drawing the line there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that's hilarious. Um, how about you, Nancy? Like you talked about, you know, you, you caught that episode in its first airing and then kind of going back to that later on after having worked with Jonathan, does your, did your perception of that episode or of the show in general change at all? No, my experience is completely opposite of Will's. Mm -hmm. I'm not an awestruck person. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying Will is, I'm, but I'm not. <laughs> Only by I, you, Nancy. I, <laughs> I know, unlike me. And I don't, it, an actor and a performance, because I went into the theater and because I saw actors all the time that I knew, I mean, I grew up with and became friendly with and so on. Um, and I had done that as early as in, you know, the early 80s before I met Jonathan. It didn't, what they had done before, after the first handshake, they weren't that anymore to me. They were performers. They were yeah. people. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan, frankly, liked the fact that I was irreverent to him, that I was <laughs> not in awe of him, mm -hmm. that I would say things and I would tease him because fans tended to not do that. They're mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, you can't do that. In fact, fans complained to other fans when they heard me do that, but teasing. <laughs> and I would say, you're not all that, Fred. 
and, <laughs> and he would laugh mm -hmm. and he liked it. Um, so it didn't affect me. We didn't talk about dark shadows together. I mean, I don't ever wear a dark sh a Barnabas Collins t-shirt ever. And it's mm -hmm. not because I have something against it. I just don't. It's just not something way I express my fanship. I don't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, not, I just don't. I don't, I don't even know why I just don't. Uh, later on, though, when I went back to the show and when I was looking at it the other day, I remember him telling a story when he came into the house for the first time with Mrs. Johnson and said it stood next to the portrait and said, if you would, you may tell her that it's Barnabas Collins. <laughs> yeah. He told a story at a festival where that clip was shown that he was aggravated with himself afterwards because he went in and he just looked at the portrait instead of saying, oh, my God, there's a portrait on me right here. He just looked at it, smirked. And that was it. Mm -hmm. And he said, I wish I had done more in that moment. And he he did tell me later when he was doing some of the of the uh, monologues that he did, especially about Josette being lifeless and bloodless, the bottom of the cliff, that he had had his, uh, I think his maid or a neighbor helping with that, that they would sit and he would go over the monologue and they would help him with the lines. Oh, wow. Um, it was sitting helping with it. Um, so things like that. And I can tell now going back and looking at the earlier episodes, pretty much what's going on. If when you see somebody rehearse and perform hundreds and hundreds of times, maybe even a thousand times, and you know that they don't feel well or they're aggravating with something, sometimes that'll blend into it. And other people won't see it. But I could see in that early episode, he was terrified, absolutely terrified. That first episode, so nervous. Mm -hmm. So yeah. his his um, the information he gave the behind the scenes sort of stuff helped to sort of inform your rewatching of of those episodes. Yeah. Because yeah, okay, but, yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, he loved to rehearse too with the other actors. I've heard several times other actors from Dark Shadows mention that he would want to get together with them to run lines, and he would mm -hmm. record himself and doing the different vo voices. Right. Well, he had, he had hired me to do that with him when he did arsenic and old lace oh, wow. and then later when he did mass appeal um i helped him with lines and he oh. had a very specific way that he did that he would talk to a tape he would have me talk talk he would record it and then he would mouth it because he was allowing enough space so that when he did the did it by himself he would have time to respond to what i was saying oh i see okay so that's how that's how he worked yeah. And I had a good time. We had a good time. I mean, work sessions were intense and, you know, and, and it was serious business, but we had a good time. I won't work with anybody that you can't joke with. I won't. That's yeah. my thing. I, I want to enjoy what I'm doing. Agreed. Yeah. Mary, how about you? Uh, episode 211, your first viewing of it and then subsequent viewings of it and how your perception changed. I began to watch the show in the spring of 1968, and it was the Frankenstein storyline. Mm -hmm. I did not see prior to that until many, many years later. Uh, it actually was on UHF channels uh, around 1976, 77. And I was in college and I caught some episodes. It was on like 1130 at night. And at college, I would be working on productions and come home around the time it was on. So I watched some episodes then. And again, they were the Barnabas episodes, but I don't really clearly remember seeing that episode 211 until the New Jersey network. I had heard that they were going to be putting the series on again, starting with Jonathan's entrance into the show. And I do want to add that some people might say, 
No, in 210, you saw his hand come out of the coffin to grab Willie. Yeah. However, that was not Jonathan's hand. It was, it was Timothy Gordon. Yeah. Right. They didn't yeah. want to pay the full fee for Jonathan to do it. So get someone that they can pay for a special business. Right. Uh, and, so, and for those who may not know, too, Timothy Gordon was also the ghost of Jeremiah Collins. He was always around. They'd have him do a variety of things on the show. But I guess his big thing was Jeremiah's ghost. Yeah. That was Jeremiah Collins was the ghost who the guy who got shot in the chest, but had a bandage on his head. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I never understood that either. <laughs> <laughs> <You> traveled. <laughs> so when I actually saw episode 211 and subsequent Barnabas episodes, I was actually at that time working in the production office of Guiding Light. It was aired at 6.30, so I would just about get home to watch the episode, not necessarily every night, but that special episode, which was just mentioned, where Victoria and Carolyn are in the, the living room at Collinwood, and Barnabas tells this monologue about this Josette falling off the cliff. And it was so powerful seeing mm -hmm. his performance. It's the mm -hmm. tears yeah. in his eyes that you, I just felt my heart went out to him. Yeah. And now being an adult and watching it, I, this is an amazing actor. What a talent. Uh, yes, I did notice that was the nervousness. And now I was working in soaps. And at that point in, in 1984, we were and not doing it the way they had done it during Dark Shadows. They would be stop and go with mistakes. Uh, we would say, stop, let's go back, do it again. Uh, but I knew at that time, soaps, they couldn't stop. So I, I certainly saw that. But there was something about the way that the actor blended with the character. Jonathan was very nervous because he didn't feel he had a complete handle on his lines because he struggled with dyslexia, which he never talked about. He never felt he should share his woes, as I like to say. Uh, so he just struggled to do the best he could. Hmm. Barnabas was hiding his dreadful secret. I'm right. not who you think I am. I'm really a vampire. So hmm. there was something about the character coalescing with Jonathan's performance that really drew you to him. Mm -hmm. He really felt he re wanted to reach out to him. And, and uh, it just really made this the character. Uh, so it was really during that time period that I was seeing these reruns on Interesting Network that Jonathan came on to do a pledge-a-thon back in those days, public television to raise money, would ask the audience to call in on their phone and pledge, say, $40. And for this special evening where Jonathan was in their studio, they had T-shirts if you gave a certain amount of money, a photograph of Jonathan, a certain amount of money. And even at one point, I think he offered, if you pledge $100, I'll even talk to you on the phone. <laughs> so... Uh, so I was so impressed at that point uh, during the interview on the Jersey Network, because he did two performance pieces, but then he also did an interview. He said he was developing a one-man show. So mm -hmm. I was enjoying my work at Guiding Light, but I had started work in theater production. I said, I'm going to write him a letter, tell him that I have a theater background and I would really like to work with him if, if he needed any assistance. I didn't know if he needed any help. I didn't know if he'd even get the letter. And then much to my delight and surprise, he called me at my home uh, like the next week and uh, said he was most impressed with my letter and he wanted to sit and meet with me and also Will McKinley to discuss his one-man show. And that was the beginning of an incredibly wonderful working relationship. I, I 
perhaps because even though I'd been a fan at that point, I was working in television that gave me a certain sense in his eyes of a professional. So we just had a tremendous professional working relationship with incredible trust between the two of us. I mean, he very quickly picked up on that. He found me of a woman of integrity and was introduced me to close friends of his. And um, and then, as I mentioned, eventually we became official partners in his company, Clunes Associates. And he truly was, he was a man of his word, a man of integrity. Honesty was very important. And as he has said in, in interviews over the years that you can still see today, that he never was particularly a fan of horror. He just thought, oh, this, this, this isn't evil. Evil is your best friend looking you in the eye and lying to you. Yeah. Deception yes. from, from the person that you know and, and care for mm-hmm. is the worst evil in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we just, but as I say, we just had a tremendous time working together. Uh, it, there was always just a well, very easy back and forth. Um, I wasn't uh, nervous or intimidated. It was just a real comfortable, um, enjoyable working relationship. Now, I've listened to a lot of interviews with him, including one on your on the DVD or Blu-ray for the, the documentary. I think he talks about he says, well, Barnabas isn't good or he, he, he played, he, if it started going too far in one direction, he'd kind of pull it back in the other direction. And in the hands of another actor, Barnabas could have been a very, could have been a, just a one dimensional character, just a, a killer. Uh, but he imbued the character with that sense of sadness uh, yes. and just really the audience connected with that. I mean, I remember yes. when I was a child watching that and it was just Barnabas was doing horrible things, but I felt sad. There was a sadness in, in there. Um, on the other hand, he, you know, I know some fans were like, he, oh, he becomes a, he becomes a, a good guy. He becomes a hero. Not really. He still mm-hmm. also would sometimes play the really dark stuff too. You know, he still, could be scary. And I think that was part of what was fascinating about Barnabas is he was un, kind of unpredictable. He was shades, a lot of shades right. of gray with Barnabas. Yeah. Plan Plan A was to work it out. Plan B was to kill him. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I remember somebody said Barnabas was always judge, jury and executioner. <laughs> like if he decided you had to die, he did it. But, it, but he also, there was a sympathetic side to him. He was sort of, sort of a, a, an anti-hero and it was interesting that the, the sort of these characters who were the monsters in the show, and I was talked a little bit about this with David Selby, sort of became the protagonists of the show. These characters who were the other, the you know, the outsiders, the the monsters, they became the leads in the show. Now we see this all the time. This is something we see in all of these types of of supernatural type shows. But Dark Shadows was groundbreaking in that regard, and it was you know Jonathan as Barnabas leading the charge with that. So, but I do want to add. And Jonathan would be the first to say this as well. It was also the writers. Yes. Well, he yeah. as, a, as an actor could come in and play Shades of Grey. The writers had to join with that yes. and put it on the page as well. And mm-hmm. they just had tremendous, Ron Sproat, one of the first writers yeah. on the show, just wrote some of those amazing monologues yes. because he could see yeah. what Jonathan could do and bring to it. So mm-hmm. they worked hand in hand. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and Danielle, you also in your in the first episode of your show, you did you talked about the other, right? You mm-hmm. talked about and how that is so much of the appeal of Dark Shadows. I mean, that's why it 
has always had a big queer audience. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's always had a big adolescent audience because, Mm -hmm. and for me, I discovered it at like the exact moment that adolescence was hitting me like with both barrels, just like kids had whatever, 15 years earlier. And it spoke to me because even though I, you know, I'm not gay and was, you know, had a good life, had a, you know, nice suburban house and good parents or whatever, you know, I was adopted and I felt very different from everybody else. And I felt disconnected from my peer groups, you know, and I felt like Dark Shadows was a, was a bit of a, refuge for me. And then it became, the fan community became my friend group. I was 14 and 15 years old and all of my friends were in their 20s and they were all Dark Shadows fans. Yes. (laughs) Right. You know, I didn't have a single friend my own age. And, (laughs) and, you know, my parents were like a little worried about me, but that's what connected to me that, you know, that, that otherness. Mm -hmm. And this is a recurring thing I hear from so many people and myself included. I think Dark Shadows did speak to those of us who did feel kind of a little different or outsiders. And I was disconnected to my with my peers as well. So Mm -hmm. it was part of the appeal. Absolutely. We'll hit it right on the head. Yeah, definitely. Now, you you each worked with closely with Jonathan, both um, individually and sometimes you'd come together as as a group, I I imagine, to to work Mm -hmm. with him. uh, I guess just kind of going around what were your approaches to working with Jonathan? Like, did you have any sort of way of, of working with Jonathan? Did you adapt to his style of doing things, et cetera? Well, well, for me, Jonathan seemed to like and encourage my, like, I don't know, youthful bravado. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was extremely in many, I was a mess as a teenager, but I also was extremely confident in a, you know, it was a bizarre combination. Right. (laughs) And um, I remember one time I was over his, his apartment and this is before this 1984, before we even started on the one man shows. And like my first job for him had been for the very first Manhattan Chavez convention in New York city in 1983, we did these big like scrapbooks of all of his memorabilia and there was a big like debut of these scrapbooks. And so my job was to prep all of his stuff, all of his, he, he gave me like 20 or 25 giant accordion folders of memorabilia and letters and photos and all this. And I had to organize it. And I remember my parents drove in from Long Island to drive me home with all these accordion folders. And my mother was like, Mr. Fred, would you explain to me how you can get him to do these things for you for free? Because (laughs) I can't get him to do a damn thing. So, you know, I basically was pretty much with my my attitude with Jonathan was like, whatever you got, I'll do. And then when New Jersey Network picked up the show, um, I was over there and he said uh, they want me to shoot some promos, some like pledge spots to get people to send money take a look at these scripts. What do you think? And I looked at them and I was like, I could do better than that. And he's like, okay, go home and do better than that and come back tomorrow. And so I did. And he was like, good job. We're going to use them. Oh so, my God. Did you write the one with the coffee mug where he, he goes and about to take a sip and he goes, this is coffee, by the way. 
Yes, I, I did. Oh, yay. That's my I favorite one. That. Thank you. It only took 35 years, but I finally got a fan from my scripts. But um, <laughs> but I, you know, and I was like, I, it never occurred to me that this would be a strange thing at 15 to say to somebody, let me write, you know, but I did it. And it, you know, and I remember like we were rehearsing them. And I said, you should wink after you say that line. And he was like, I'm not going to wink. <laughs> and of course he winked. And it's like, not only what I was, I writing for him, I was also like giving him, and I was a teenager. It was very strange. It was very strange experience. That's surreal. Still, yeah. <laughs> I still don't even, it still doesn't even feel real in a weird way. Like 35 years later, you know, <laughs> how about you, Nancy? Um, one thing, and it only just occurred to me now, 35 years later, when the three of us were doing our own thing with Jonathan, there wasn't any, he pays to me more attention than you, or I want him to like mine, but not yours. There wasn't any conflict like that. There wasn't mm-hmm. any ego where it was as a group, we were all on a team and it really only just occurred to me. We didn't fight. No, never. didn't argue. There wasn't any of that. It's just like. And I remember saying one time I was really into this idea that I had for um, a story and Mary came up with a better idea. And I was like, I like Mary's idea better. And he later said something to me about that. And he said, well, that must be kind of hard to do. And I said, no, I want what's best for the show. You know, if she's got a better idea, Will's got a better idea. Fine. You know, it's what works. So and my approach with Jonathan was when I was writing for him, I would bring in all kinds of ideas and then he would just say, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. This one's OK, blah, blah, blah. So I learned to have a thicker skin because I was super sensitive. I'm still sensitive, but not as really super sensitive back then. So I learned to develop a thicker skin that wasn't personal. He just that just wasn't working for him. And that was our approach. We would talk. Sometimes we would write down ideas. We'd go down to Pete's for lunch or dinner and an idea would hit us while we were talking and we'd be writing it down on napkins, things that we would come up with. So we were always sort of talking about the show, making observations and saying, you know, that would work. That's an idea. Uh, So that's how our relationship worked. I thought outside the box of things and he liked dark humor, as did I. So um (laughs) It worked, the, the gala's humor, that worked better. But, you know, overall as a team, I feel it's really important to say we worked well together uh, mm-hmm. when we were together. And then when we were separate, sometimes we would call up and cons- you know consult with the other one and say, what do you think about this? I'm not sure. That's how that relationship yeah. worked. And you and Mary? Thinking back on that year, which was 1986, when we really finalized his first show, one which was called Jonathan Fritz, Fools and Fiends. And believe me, we went through many different titles (laughs) before settling on that one. As we were working with him, it was incredible to the kind of energy passion that he had because the schedules were different for each of us since I was working on a soap opera during the day from eight in the morning till six. I would then work with him in the evenings. I would go over, have a session, late dinner, and then I would head home. But earlier in the day, Nancy was working at night. So she would work with him in daytime hours. And Will, being a high school student in Long Island, would come in on the weekends and work with him. So he was constantly, hours and hours between the three of us separately. (laughs) 
totally focused and devoted to creating the show. I mean, when he set his mind to something, he worked really incredibly hard. And one time I had heard him describe himself as lazy. And no, (laughs) I would completely disagree with that. That year, I saw a man work incredibly hard, hours and hours and hours. And he didn't tire. He was wanting at this point in his life, because as we all know, he had he had stepped away from most of his, any offers for television or film. Um, he had done some theater, some play readings for friends, but he really decided I'm going to come back into the business on my terms and it's going to be with a one man show. And it was the three of us as a team working with him that made it happen. And ultimately I am a type of person who's let's move forward. Let's go keep moving forward. Jonathan loved to take a script and analyze it, dwell on it. <laughs> yeah. Let me try this way. Let me try that way. And I sometimes would come in and say, this is what we need to accomplish tonight. X, Y, Z is what we're doing tonight. And then we got to move forward. And so ultimately, as he kept playing with the script, and of course, also I was contacting authors or their agents to get rights. And sometimes we, the answer would be no. And then, okay, let's put this story in instead. Finally, I said, we've got a booking. You're going to be performing October 18th, 1986 in Newport, Rhode Island. Lock the script. You got to go. And um, I finally was, oh, yes. okay." (laughs) So I guess I'm the person who really said, let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, from everything I've heard, you know, the Reader's Theater, he was so passionate about that. He was so happy to be doing that. Um, And I've had people uh, every so often, you know, and just in the classic horror fandom or just friends or like, oh, I can't believe that he never, you know, he could have been the next uh, Christopher Lee or the next Vincent Price. And oh my he God. was, he was offered roles in, in the horror genre. He did, he, he didn't want that. He wanted to do his thing, you know, uh, is, isn't that uh, the case, uh, Nancy? Oh, yes. I, I, when I was working with him later in the nineties, early two thousands, I would get these calls from people about wanting him to do this movie, that movie, yeah, um, the new dark, the Dan Curtis, dark shadows revival and all mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. he just didn't have any interest in it. And he also told me, he said, you know, one reason why I don't want to do these things is I don't ever want to be as famous as I, as I was mm-hmm. back then. He never wanted to be that famous again. Of course, it's kind of a dichotomy because in order to be, in order to get consistent work, you have to be known. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say that, but yet there are people in the theater who are always working, but you'll never know them because they're not famous or not in television. Right. Um, so, I mean, there was always that. But no, he had no interest in, in doing that and right. being Vincent Price or anything. Right. And I mean, you see the pictures with, with him just doing, uh, as I talked about with David Selby, too, you know, doing those tours. And it was like the Beatles I mean, being surrounded by thousands of screaming teenagers. And while I'm sure that on some level, that must have been really inspiring or, or impressive sure. to see that. But on the other hand, it's it, you have no privacy anymore. And when he went back to Canada, he had a little bit more privacy because Dark Shadows didn't air that much up there, except maybe like on the border, but wasn't too far up in Canada. But, but some fans would pay Internet services to find him. Oh, wow. And they did that. Lots of fans did that. Yes, no. they did. Wow. Yes, that's, they did. That is stalkery. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that is scary. Wow. Um, th- now, I've heard you uh, when, when you were on the um, 
Collinsport Historical Society podcast to tell some funny stories uh, about Jonathan. I think, Will, you talked about him like spraying you with a hose or something when you showed up at his house or was it was that? It was me. It was me. It was you always. You yeah. What would so do you have any funny stories like that about uh, about Jonathan? Which well, sounds hose, like he was very playful. Yeah, <laughs> the hose story. It was very hot. And when I went up, I always asked him if he wanted me to do anything, as I would any elderly person. Mm. And and as I did for elderly friends, because I have friends who are much older than myself and younger than myself. So in this case, I would say, can I help you do anything? And we would go out. And I remember my my spouse, Kay, and I were out in his um, front yard and we were working. And I I yelled in the house. I said, Fred, I need water. <laughs> um, I said, it's hot. So he came out and he turned the hose on and he said, here's your water. And, <laughs> and, and at that, but the thing is there were water guns yeah. and because his, his uh, gardener's uh, son had left water guns around. So I had water guns and we did that several times. We had several water gun fights. Oh, that sounds fun. Well, wow. it was. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? He was Will? very gentle, though. Like he wouldn't full spray you right. with the hose. He was <laughs> like he would spray your feet and the bottom of your legs. He wouldn't like go for your face. Yeah, I went for the face. So oh. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't play. No. <laughs> what about you, uh, Will? Any any funny or amusing stories? Oh, uh, I mean, so many. He was, you know, he was. Uh, uh, he was very like the, you knew Jonathan liked you if he basically was not nice to you. And <laughs> I mean, and I mean that in the best way, like he uh, if he was frank with you, I mean, Nancy sort of mentioned this, then you knew that he respected you. Right. But um, so we would argue a lot and Mary and I would then like leave and walk back to the subway and she would be like, oh, are you OK? And, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> And I whatever I grew up, you know, in a family where everybody yelled at each other. So it was no big deal. But um, but the I think one of my favorite stories with him is that in my junior year of high school, we had all started working together and New Jersey Network wanted him to come out and do another the second special. Mary had seen the first one that he did like early 85, the second special. They wanted him to come back and it was like a rebroadcast, but there were new, he was going to be in the studio during the pledge segments. Right. So he said, you want to come? And I was like, sure. And he's like, well, they're going to send a limo. So, you know, you got to get into the city and, and then we'll take the limo down to Trenton, New Jersey. And I went home and I told my parents, I'm going to go be on TV with Jonathan Fritt. And they're like, no, you're not. It's a school night. And I was like, wait, what? So I called Jonathan and he was like, tell them that. And it, it was not just a school night. It was like my Spanish final exam. Okay. And my parents are like, you're crazy. You have a final that next day. And he was like, tell your parents that we'll study in the limo. So <laughs> they went for it. Like much to my surprise. And so like I brought my Spanish textbook and he's like, all right, we're going to we have like an hour and a half drive. We're going to study the whole way down and the whole way back. And he knew Spanish. Yeah, he knew Spanish. He knew right. Spanish very well. Mm -hmm. So we got to the special and I was on the phone bank. And at one point in the show, he came over and he was like, I was talking to somebody pledging. And he was like, and this is William McKinley. And he's a brilliant, brilliant student. He's a yes. Brilliant student. Yes. And I was like, is he talking about me? You know, 
And he was like, and he came all the way down to New Jersey and he has a final exam tomorrow. <laughs> and, and then like 30 years later, I was at a convention and someone came up to me and was like, how did you do on that final? I was about to ask if you passed. <laughs> and the fact is that I did better on that final than I did it on any other test that year. Because oh, I awesome. Was, because I was like so prepped because I was, yeah. I wanted to show my parents I can do it. You know, I can. <laughs> I can go work and also, you know, whatever, be a student. So, yeah. but he was like, that was, you know, he was very cool. He was very supportive. Yeah. You know, he like loved to encourage young people and give them opportunities. And yeah, just a, just a really good guy to work for. Great. And Mary, any, any funny stories? The first that comes to mind is when we were at Helen Samaris's house in Long Island. Uh, it was a party and they had a beautiful pool in her backyard and we were all taking turns swimming and there was a water raft and I was trying to get on it. And Jonathan, who was standing at the side, said I was doing it all wrong. And we we're all kind of laughing. And so he said, I'll show you how to get on it. And he said, you jump, you lean forward. And he does. But as he gets on the raft, it starts to pull down his swim trunks. Oh. So he ruined us all. Um, oh. <laughs> um, but you know, it was a great, it was a very fun day. He really enjoyed being with us. It's just, uh, yes, we'd been fans, but he just enjoyed being with us and, and laughing. He had a great sense of humor. But sort of the twist about that particular party was that very sadly, Helen has sister Angela, who'd been diagnosed with an inoperable tumor. And she yeah. was dying and it was his idea. Let's have something fun for the family. We'll come over. We'll have a big barbecue party. And Nancy, well, we were all called about, okay, what can we do? We will bring and coordinate and, and just have a fun time to give, give Helen and Angela a wonderful time together. And um, he was just yeah. such a compassionate man yeah. um, that is expressed, of course, in the documentary as well. Um, he really took an interest in the other person. And if you were having troubles, he was there to, to listen or provide yes. advice. But it's so often it was just he was not only a great storyteller, he was a wonderful listener. And he was uh, a good friend. He was a good friend. He yeah. was. Yeah. And even you though I said, trouble. yeah. And even though I, I was like, I tried to keep the, you know, the line between, you know, the fan line. I tried to keep that intact. He was also very so, like he came to my high school graduation party in my parents' backyard. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. he did not have to do that. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. He came to my 40th, came down from Canada for my 40th birthday party. That's really, yeah. And, and it's, you know, you hear from, hear from the cast uh, on Dark Shadows too. They all speak very fondly of Jonathan and how they cared about people. He was mm -hmm. a kind person. He was mm -hmm. a, a kind man. Uh, so thank you all for sharing your You're welcome. Thank memories. you for having us, Penny. Oh my goodness. My pleasure. Now, uh, before uh, we move on here, uh, we have a special presentation. This is a, a very exciting presentation. I want to thank you for sharing this with me, uh, Mary. Uh, and I know, I believe Will is the one who acquired this. Uh, this is uh, a never before heard performance by Jonathan Frid uh, performing Dead Call by the author William F. Nolan. Uh, a great story and a, a great performance by Jonathan Frid. And you're going to hear it here first, uh, folks, on Terror at Collinwood. So thank you so much for sharing this, Mary. Uh, would uh, somebody put this into call, either you, Mary, or, or Will, tell us about this, uh, put this into context for us? Well, I, 
uh, I found this. I remember I found this story, uh, you know, just I would just sit and, you know, pour through books. And uh, I found this story and I read it. And Nancy had mentioned earlier that he had a dark sense of humor and that, you know, he liked to do even though he didn't like the identification as the, you know, as the monster or the vampire or whatever, he did have a, a sort of dark sensibility. And I was like, he's going to love this because I don't want, I won't spoil it, but mm-hmm. it ends very darkly. Yeah. And um, so, and I pitched it to him and he loved it and it became a core part of the show. And then strangely enough, we, I loved it so much that I ended up, adapting it for my um, thesis film for NYU Film School. And Jonathan was in attendance at the premiere of the film. And Nancy, Nancy has a small role in my film. And Nancy's spouse, Kay, our our good uh, old friend, Kay, did the like the movie poster for it. So, wow. So it became sort of like a clue. And Mary was at the, the screening as well. So it became like a sort of Clinton's Associates, uh, you know, reunion a couple yeah. of years, a couple of years later. So, um, yeah, it's a great story, spooky. And I think you guys will love it. Yeah. Your listeners will love it. Uh, well, I would just want to tell you that William F. Nolan actually saw Jonathan perform it when he was in Los Angeles. And he wrote a lovely note to Jonathan about how thrilled he was to see this rendition that Jonathan did. He just absolutely was totally on point and really pleased by it. Um, And I actually had the opportunity to see William F. Nolan in 2016. I was interviewed for the Dan Curtis doc that same day they we're interviewing Willis Nolan. And I went up to him and I just took myself. I said, you're not going to probably remember my name, but I worked with Jonathan and you wrote that lovely letter. And he said, I remember I got those royalty checks. (laughs) (laughs) um, So, um, because of course it was copyrighted material. And I, when I called the authors, uh, sometimes uh, they would ask for a small fee uh, because obviously we weren't for profit. We, we were just a struggling little theater company. And um, so his funny thing that they would remember that. But um, shortly before his death, um, I had contacted him because I was uh, working on the documentary uh, and asked for permission to use it in the documentary and potentially promotionally. And he was 100 percent for it. Um, he again, because he just thought Jonathan had done such a lovely job. And this particular recording Uh, was when Jonathan began to experiment with putting music and sound effects into the show. Uh, So this actually does have some music and sound effects in it, uh, which is unlike earlier recordings when we first were doing his one-man shows, he was always recording in his apartment because in a way he was his own director. So he would record on his video camera and then watch these just to try to improve himself. Um, they, they were never particularly good quality, but uh, this was really a truly you know, professional quality recording because we were working with music and sound effects. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing this and folks stick around because you definitely do not want to miss this. It's fantastic. Thank you again to my guests for joining me for this episode of Terror at Collinwood, this special celebration of Jonathan Fritz's first appearance as Barnabas Collins 55 years ago. If all goes according to plan, this will be posted on April 18th, 2022. And thank you so much for listening. Please remember 
remember to subscribe to the podcast. Please remember to share the podcast, tell your friends, spread it like the dream curse so that everyone can find <laughs> out about it. <laughs> and, and thank Dan- you. Danielle, I want to thank you for uh, like shining a light on the early fandom days because it's not, you know, it's, it's such an important part of Dark Shadows history yes. that is not really discussed or not even known by a lot of the current people. And right. You know, like we carried the torch, you know, when there was nothing out there. So thanks yeah. for, for, you know, for sharing those stories. Oh yes, my goodness. You, Danielle. Oh, thank it's you. absolutely my pleasure. And, uh, and my, I'm honored to do that because uh, it, the dark shadows fandom wouldn't be where it is today. If it wasn't for everything that, that has uh, created the foundation for the fandom the, 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 the festivals and um, just the, the, the camaraderie, the fanzines, I subscribed to all those zines back in, oh, yes. the, in the 80s and the, yeah, the 90s. Too. And yeah, they were great. And I had Kathy Rush on and she, she really dove deep into the, to yeah. the origins. I, it was oh, yeah. so, so fascinating. Yeah, so she's thank- incredible. We owe a lot to her. Oh, well, yeah. owe a lot to her and Marcy Robbins. Yeah. I got to get Marcy on here at some point too. I'd love to chat with her. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Grand Central Partnership is pleased to present Jonathan Frid. Len had been dead a month when the phone rang. Midnight, cold in the house, and me dragged up from sleep to answer the call. Helen gone for the weekend, me alone in the house, and the phone ringing. Hello? Hello, Frank. Who's this? You know me. It's Len. Old Len Stiles. Deep and intense, the receiver dead cold metal in my hand. Leonard Stiles died four weeks ago. Four weeks, three days, two hours and 27 minutes to be exact. I want to know who you are. Chuckle, that same dry chuckle I'd heard so many times. <laughs> Come on, old buddy, after 20 years. Hell, you know me. This is a damn poor joke. No joke, Frank. You're there alive, and I'm here dead. And you know something, old buddy? I'm really glad I did it. Did what? Killed myself. Because death is just what I hoped it would be. Beautiful, gray, quiet, no pressures. Len Stiles' death was an accident, a concrete freeway barrier. His ca- I aimed my car for that barrier, pedaled to the floor, doing almost a hundred when I hit. No accident, Frank. I wanted to be dead. No regrets. Well, I I tried to laugh, make light of this. 
<laughs> matching his chuckle with my own. <laughs> Dead men don't use telephones. Think of this phone as a medium, a line of force through which I can bridge the gap between us. <laughs> Hell, you gotta admit it beats holding hands around a table in the dark. Yet the principle's the same. I still don't naturally you're skeptical. I expected you to be, but listen carefully to me, Frank. And I listened as the voice told me things that only Len could know. Intimate details of shared experiences extending back through two decades. And when he'd finished, I was certain of one thing. He was Len Stiles. All right, I, I, I don't believe in ghosts. Don't pretend to understand any of this, but I'll accept it. I must accept it. I'm glad, Frank, because it's important that we talk. I know how lousy things have been, old buddy. What do you mean? I just know how things are going for you, and I want to help. As your friend, I want you to know that I understand. Well, really not you've been feeling bad now, haven't you? Hmm? Kind of down, right? Yeah, a little, I guess. And I don't blame you. You got reasons, lots of reasons. For one, there's your money problem. I'm expecting a raise. Cooney promised me one within the next few weeks. You won't get it, Frank, I know. He's lying to you. Cooney's planning to fire you. He never did like me. We never got along from the day I walked into his office. And your wife. All the arguments you've been having lately. It's a pattern, Frank. Your marriage is all over. Helen's going to ask for a divorce. She's in love with another man. Who, damn it? What's his name? You don't know him. Wouldn't change things if you did. There's nothing you can do about it now. Helen just doesn't love you anymore. These things happen to people. We've been drifting apart for the last year, but I didn't know why. I had no idea that she... And then there's Jan. She's back on it, Frank. Only it's worse now. A lot worse. I knew what he meant. The coldness raked along my body. See, Jan's 19, my oldest daughter, and she's been into drugs for the past three years, but she'd promised to quit. What do you know about Jan? Tell me. She's into the heavy stuff, Frank. She's hooked bad. It's too late for her. What the hell are you saying? I'm saying she's lost to you. She's rejected you, and there's no reaching her. She hates you, blames you for everything. Well, I won't accept that kind of blame. I, I did my best for her. It wasn't enough, Frank. We both know that. You'll never see Jan again. Blackness was welling within me, but a choking wave through my body. Listen to me, old buddy. Things are gonna get worse, not better. I know. 
I went through my own kind of hell when I was alive. Well, I'll start over. I'll leave the city, go east, work with my brother in New York. Your brother doesn't want you in his life. You'll be an intruder, an alien. He never writes you, does he? No, but that doesn't mean not even a card last Christmas. No letters or calls. He doesn't want you with him, Frank. Believe me. And then he began to tell me other things. He began to talk about middle age and how it was too late now to make any kind of new beginning. He spoke of disease, loneliness, rejection, and despair. And the blackness was complete. There's only one real solution to things, Frank. Just one. That gun you keep in your desk upstairs. Use it, Frank. Use the gun. I couldn't do that. Why not? What other choice have I got? The solution is there. Go upstairs and use the gun. I'll be waiting for you afterwards. You won't be alone. It'll be like the old days. We'll be together. Death is beautiful. Use the gun, Frank. The gun. Use the gun. The gun. The gun. I've been dead for a month now, and Len was right. It's fine here. No pressures, no worries. Gray and quiet and beautiful. I know how lousy things have been going for you. They won't get any better. Isn't that your phone ringing? You better answer it. Because it's important that we talk. Absolutely incredible. Oh, that voice. Let me tell you. Wow. I Thank you so much to Mary O'Leary for uh, helping to make this episode happen. Uh, she connected me with David Selby uh, and reached out to Will and also provided this magnificent performance from Jonathan Fritz. So, Mary, thank you very much for uh, helping out so much with this celebration of the 55th anniversary of Jonathan Fritz's first appearance as the legendary Barnabas Collins. 
And Just Real Quick, Dead Call was written by author William F. Nolan, and it featured music by David Christenberry slash RaveDave60 Music. Mary had permission to use this performance, and be sure to pick up Dark Shadows and Beyond, the Jonathan Frid story. If you have not watched it yet, you can get it on Amazon. It is available at many, many places. Uh, I'll put a link to the uh, Amazon page for it uh, in the show notes. And just a quick uh, copyright disclaimer with regard to the performance. Copyright disclaimer under Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976. Allowances made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, commenting, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly dissipated, for there will always be Terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production. This episode of Terror at Collinwood is dedicated to the memory of Kay Fry. Nancy Kersey mentions her spouse Kay during this episode, and uh, Kay has uh, passed away. My deepest sympathies to Nancy and to Kay's family and friends.